And so what we're doing with Sea Gliders is really creating a service that has the cost and the speed and the convenience characteristics of high-speed rail without any of the infrastructure costs and with no emissions because it's battery powered. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and the Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. And today we're joined by Billy Tallheimer, co-founder and CEO of Regent. We're going to be talking about life as a moonshot. Billy, thanks for being on the show. Ryan, thanks for having me. Excited to talk today. All right. So help us set the stage. Regent, I'm a huge fan. I've been following you guys for a while. I think people in the energy storage EV community are fans. For those that don't know, tell us a little bit about Regent. Yeah, so Regent builds sea gliders, which are a new mode of transportation, a hybrid between a boat and a plane. So sea gliders are essentially flying boats that provide dock-to-dock overwater transportation for regional routes. Think things like Boston, New York, Miami, Bahamas, LA, San Francisco. Uh, These are the kind of routes we serve globally. Our sea gliders fly within a wingspan of the surface of the water, flying on a cushion of air known as ground effect. And so if you look at birds at sea and you see them flying low over the water, they're using the same thing, that aerodynamically favorable mode that lets us, as an all-electric vehicle, get double the range of an electric aircraft. So uh, we're building them here at Region and expect to get them to market by 2025. So I mentioned this in the intro you know, and I know you and I have spoken about it before. I never know if the term moonshot is a compliment or something that, you know, companies that are going for it don't appreciate. Is that the right term? I mean, it looks like you guys are looking to completely reinvent a space. I use the term moonshot. Is that the correct term? Yeah, no, I I love this because think about what moonshot comes from, like literally like going to the moon. Uh, And it it represents uh, this amazing, incredible challenge that seems audacious, to some extent seems impossible, and the completion of which just has outsized benefits for all of humanity. It it is this thing that generates amazing returns of value and and certainly uh, from the business perspective creates amazing returns for your investors. So in that context, a moonshot is a really, really good thing. Uh, I think the term has taken on, you know, especially recently, maybe taken on sort of that negative connotation. Like you said, you know, you're never sure if it's okay to to call a a company a, a moonshot. Think back to some of the earlier days in venture, and I think all companies were moonshots. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know some early big startups, uh, Airbnb and Dropbox and, and eBay. You know, like established companies today could be considered moonshots. And so, to me, I actually take it as a compliment because when someone calls us a moonshot, they're saying you're doing something that doesn't look like anything else that exists today. Right? This is novel. This is creative. This is differentiated. If we looked like everything else, if we were the X of Y, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't have as much of a percentage of changing humanity. Uh, and, and it would be sort of we'd be in competition with all these groups. Uh, so we're a moonshot in that we are taking on this audacious goal. We're creating a new mode of transportation. We're creating a sustainable mode of transportation and ushering in uh, literally a new era of electric powered of sustainable transportation. 
and we're trying to do it on very fast timeframes. Uh, so I absolutely think uh, Regent is considered a moonshot, and I view it in the positive way of we have this amazing challenge, and when we achieve it, we have absolutely just outstanding results for humanity and returns to our investors. And I obviously meant it in a complimentary way, so you know we're, I think we're seeing this the same way. This episode that we're recording right now is going to air, I think this will be the first episode in the new year, 2023. So some people will be listening to this many, many months and years after January of 2023, but we reserve the spot and some of the spots right after New Year's for moonshot, you know, inspirational companies that are like, look, we're going to go for something huge here. We're not looking to like eke out a 10% performance gain on XYZ. What does life look like, practically speaking, in a moonshot style company? You know, when you're rallying the troops, I mean, are you guys just like at 11 out of 10 all the time? Or, and, and like, if so, how do you even moderate that? How do you bring the temperature down and get more to that? Like, okay, we got to grind out some real practical wins to make a moonshot a thing that happened. Yeah, it starts with the team and it starts with how we hire the team that uh, people that work at, at Regent and are building this moonshot to train transportation are just incredibly passionate about it. Uh, you know, these are people that have a love of aircraft or boats or of transportation. They love travel. They come to Regent with some passion and we screen for that uh, in our interview process because this is a long journey. This is a multi-decade journey and a, a many multi-decade company that we're building here. Uh, and if they're in it just because this is sort of a, a cool new application of some technology or just a job, they, they will not last over those decades. Um, so it starts with getting those incredibly passionate people, whatever draws them here to region to build sea gliders. It's something that will sustain. Uh, and then when we go to work, it's it's getting everyone on the same playing field, holding everyone to an incredibly high bar to say uh, Regent works really fast with an incredibly high level uh, of meticulousness and diligence and uh, importance of safety as we are building human flown vehicles. And so that is just the culture we create. Uh, we open up an office uh, and we have people come to the office. It's sort of a novel concept in the post-COVID world, but uh, we, we get our team team onto the same field together. We're building with atoms and not bits. And so, you know, we have uh, people actually turning wrenches and plugging in wires. And so um, there's a, a great deal of benefit that we get from being an in-person company that's building this hardware item together with incredibly passionate people that want to see not just our first product come to market, but all the products that we're going to build later that will continue to revolutionize sustainable transportation. I love it. You know, one of the things that when I look at this and I and I look at, you know, in general, electrified aviation. So I, I think Uber has experimented with like short haul helicopter service, like New York to JFK kind of deal. My mind always goes to energy density. You know, this is where the I think the boo birds are saying it'll never happen because the energy density isn't there. How are you guys thinking about this? I know you mentioned ground effects. I love the idea of taking advantage of some of the natural advantages of, of, of quote unquote flying boat, low flying aircraft. Talk about like energy density, how you guys are thinking about this, et cetera. 
Yeah, so uh, myself, my co-founder, and a lot of the early engineering team uh, at Regent were working on electric aircraft and other spaces. So we were intimately familiar and all equally frustrated with, you know, the the uh, amount of energy density that we have in batteries today. Uh, and that's important because that's the tools we have today. And because we're all engineers, we said, if we're going to start a company, we're going to build with COTS components, commercially available off-the-shelf components that we have today. Uh, and we're going to bring a product to market with performance that, that creates a usable market. And then when technology gets better in the future, and it certainly will, and there's billions going into that space around the world to make it better, great. You know, that's upside to us. We can grow our range. We can grow the capability of the vehicle. But this minimum viable product, this first product we bring to market, we call it our, our Viceroy Sea Glider, our 12-seater Sea Glider. That's going to use things that we can buy today so we can build it, so we can test it, so that we can, with very high confidence, deliver it to our customers on time. So when we think about uh, battery-specific energies, you know, that's sort of the key metric. There's two ways of looking at it, your volumetric-specific energy, watt-hours per liter, uh, and your gravimetric, right, and, and watt-hours per kilogram. Uh, we're building a boat. Uh, Archimedes was onto something when he was talking about sort of flotation and displacement and things like that. Uh, Battery-powered vehicles are, are heavier than sort of the same, uh, you know, gas-powered per range equivalent. And so um, what that drives is a nice big hull for us so that we can float, uh, which also means we have lots of room to store our batteries in the hull. Uh, so that water is per liter, that, that volumetric specific energy isn't quite as important. The key for us, and, and actually it turns out to be the key for all electric aircraft, is the gravimetric uh, specific energy density or watt hours per kilogram. So um, two ways of talking about that, your cell level, because you have your, your you know little cells, whether they be cylindrical or packed cells, and then you package those cells into a module, and the modules often contain you know, installation brackets for mounting, some uh, containment for thermal runaway events, so you can contain the heat, protect your passengers, ventilation systems, uh, so that when you go into that thermal runaway event, you can vent all that really noxious gas outside the cabin. Um, so there's all that. The, the packaging system are an engineering system in and of themselves beyond just the cells. Um, so to us as the OEM, as the integrator, putting these things in our vehicle, we interface with the batteries at that pack level, cells plus packaging. Uh, and what we're seeing is sort of state of the art today uh, is on the order of low 200s watt hours per kilogram uh, at the pack level. Those are commercially available uh, and, you know, imminent like 2023, uh, we're, we're seeing projections for mid 200s, you know, 230, 240, 250 watt hour per kilogram at the pack level. And so that's what we've based our entire business model on. Those mid 200s, one hour per kilogram at the pack level can do all of the performance we're promising the world and we're actually signing in our contracts 180 miles at 180 miles an hour. You know, I mentioned the boo birds earlier. I'm a huge electrification of transportation guy. You know, I think there's folks that aren't. And one of the things they point out is, listen, you're never going to get a Moore's Law type outcome from energy density. And what you're saying and, and what I've thought for a long time is we really don't need to. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of use cases you unlock with some incremental improvements or just efficient utilization of it where it is now, the technology now. Talk a little bit about use cases that you guys consider slam dunks. You know, you're saying, listen, this is the Venn diagram intersection of like the economics makes sense. The technology is going to provide advantages over current I don't know, maybe there's another circle in that that you guys think about. What are some of the slam dunks you guys are really excited about? 
Yeah. So you think about like, how do you travel different ranges, right? So for, for short range travel, uh, especially over water, you have boats uh, and you have cars on land, right? So, you know, those start to get annoying and frustrating, whether it be from cost or, or traffic, you know, slow uh, trip distances on a boat um, around the sort of like 30, maybe 40 mile range, you know, you're talking about trips in, in a near or in excess of an hour. Um, I start certainly start to get bored after an hour, you know, maybe I have to go to the bathroom, like that sort of seems like the, the key point there. Then you think about uh, long range travel. Uh, and we have commercial aviation, which has a huge amount of overhead, you have to drive to the airport, walk through the airport, check in, go to your gate, get there early in case there's delays, get on the plane, wait for the other 300 people to board the plane as well taxi out, take off in the traffic pattern, and now you're on your way. And you're on your way in a very fast vehicle, like it's great for long range. And the longer the range, the less that overhead on either side really matters in your trip and the less it frustrates you. But what that creates with the modes of transportation we have available today is this gap between, say, 30 miles on the low end and about 500 miles on the long end where you're going to be sitting in traffic no matter when you go because you're talking about a multiple hour trip. Uh, boats are too slow to do it. So again, you're talking about multiple hour trips. And you're still talking about multiple hour trips if you take a plane, because even though they're fast, that overhead ends up being more than half your trip. You're sitting in the airport and doing all these things longer than you're sitting in the airplane. So that is really where this technology uh, shines. Uh, there's another mode of transportation, high speed rail, that that also excels in this form. Uh, but high-speed rail is not everywhere. High-speed rail has uh, prohibitive infrastructure development costs that makes it extremely expensive to build new rail. And so what we're doing with sea gliders is really creating a service that has the cost and the speed and the convenience characteristics of high-speed rail without any of the infrastructure costs and with no emissions because it's battery powered. So that's what this is. It's aircraft speed at boat convenience. It's high-speed rail without the infrastructure costs in these routes between say 30 and 500 miles over coastal routes. So where is that? Uh, today with existing battery technology at those 180 miles, uh, we're talking about routes like Manhattan to the Hamptons, uh, Miami to Key West or the Bahamas, Los Angeles to uh, San Diego or Santa Barbara. Those are some of the US routes. We're talking about the global ferry industry. I'm talking about the Mediterranean Sea, the English Channel, the North Sea, the Baltic Sea. Globally, there's four and a half billion ferry passengers a year. That's as many passengers as are in aircraft. So that is a massive market. And of course, we're talking about island chains, Hawaii, New Zealand, Japan, etc. So that's the market just that we can do today. And then as this battery technology grows, as we get new cell chemistries, lithium metal, silicon anode, et cetera, we grow out to that 500 mile range. And now we can do the most painful routes. You know, I grew up in the Boston area, so it was always Boston and New York for me. That was just the most painful route. Uh, as we've been raising money in a venture back startup, it's been the Los Angeles to San Francisco route. Uh, so these are the routes we're talking about now that we can do in two to three hours door to door for half the cost of an aircraft with none of the agita of going through the airports and with zero emissions. Again, it's that high-speed rail convenience without any of the infrastructure development cost. I love it. One question I have, and I think maybe uh, folks following along might also wonder, solar, PV. Is PV worth the weight that it adds for the power that it... You mentioned most of the... Okay, look, Boston, New York is not a sunny route, but you know Miami to the Bahamas, extremely sunny. You know That's going to, I think, score highly for energy creation. 
is so, even in the most optimistic, best, perfect, cloudless, direct sunlight right at the equator, is PV worth the weight, the, the actual weight that it adds? Never on a flying vehicle, or at least not in the next century on a flying vehicle. Uh, PV is amazing for, for energy storage, you know, so uh, if we're powering our chargers over time with PV and doing that in tandem with other sustainable sources, uh, like winds, like geothermal, uh, like wave-powered and tidal-powered systems, uh, that's a great way of, you know, charging the batteries in the grid or even creating local microgrids that can be used to charge sea gliders. Um, but even though sea gliders are very efficient vehicles, far more efficient than aircraft flying on this cushion of air and ground effect, uh, or even riding on our hydrofoils in the harbor. So we are always in an efficient mode. Still, you have a large vehicle moving very quickly and the power requirements are just much greater than, than solar will be able to do by itself uh, for probably for the next you know, 100 years or so. So I drive a plug-in electric car. One of the most satisfying parts of a plug-in electric is recapturing energy when you decelerate, aka mm -hmm. press the brake and it begins to you know recapture that momentum. And like as you guys are thinking about electrifying aircrafts, are there opportunities to recapture energy when you guys are you know starting to to come in? I don't know, propeller runs backwards type of deal, or is this what are you guys observing here? That's I, I'm really glad you bring that up because it, it represents actually a, a secondary reason why sea gliders are more efficient than aircraft. So obviously, the, the first reason is that we're flying on this cushion of air. But the second reason that we don't need to climb. So for for any distance, uh, you always want to put in sort of the, the minimal, you know, constant power that you can to go that distance. That's the most efficient way. Uh, so an aircraft flying, even though when an aircraft comes down from altitude, they are sort of you, you could put in some regenerative system because you've gained all this potential energy in the climb that you're now, you know, can convert into kinetic or some other stored form of energy on the descent. You have to get the aircraft up there. And because we don't have perpetual motion machines, you will always lose energy along the way. So that up and down, even if you recapture some, is going to be less efficient than going straight. Uh, for example, in your car, you had to speed up to then brake right? In the most efficient way, if you had like just drifted up to that light such that you never had to break and you just came to a stop right at it, that's the most efficient way of discharging the batteries. So for our vehicle, we're always flying in ground effect. We don't have a, a regenerative uh, potential on the vehicle because we never need to come down. So we're, we're never in that energy harvesting perspective. We're always putting in the minimal amount of energy or power required to operate the vehicle. And that's why we get double the range of an aircraft. One of the big technology breakthroughs uh, in the news right now, we sit here recording this in December of 2022, you know, there's been a huge breakthrough in fusion, small scale, but very, very interesting um, for folks not uh, following the story closely. I'm not even going to get into the technology. Effectively, like they've created a reaction that produced more energy than the inputs that went into it. And I think it was a non-trivial amount. I want to say it was something like 25% more energy came out of the reaction than was put into it. As an electrification guide, this must be fantastically interesting to you I, I, and uh, good news. I mean, the, the time horizon is going to be decades on this, but the trend line, this seems fantastic. What's your take? 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many new forms of, of energy generation and energy storage that we're seeing, right? Um, people think sustainability and they think batteries, and, it, and it's much more than that. Certainly, our first sea gliders will use batteries, but the point is we are, we are freeing our transportation systems and indeed our global energy generation and storage systems from a hydrocarbon backbone, right? We're, we're removing that tie to the earth to the oil where we're not burning dinosaurs to power our vehicles to turn shafts that physically impart this power into the air or into the tires right we are changing this we're storing these energies uh, and we can store them in, in sustainable chemicals such as hydrogen we can store them in batteries we can generate this sustainably using nature like we were talking about wind solar etc uh, or we can uh, generate it atomically with uh, you know fusion as, as is being developed now but the whole point is um, this is a uh, incredibly important for for the future of the planet uh, and, and uh, fast moving and exciting field that we're in and, and we have you know we build boats that also fly, but we still get to use boat puns. So uh, this is truly, you know, the rising tide that is raising all ships here. Uh, so it's a really exciting industry to be in. I have one last question, and then I want to ask you about wrong side of impossible. I want to hear about some of the things you guys are really focused on. I want to talk about noise. One of the things that is, you know, uh, anybody who has observed a Tesla, in fact, in the early days, they were concerned that Teslas were so quiet that there was going to be this giant culling of pedestrians, you know, and Teslas, are just, uh, which didn't really take place. And of course, now you can kind of layer on your own noise over the Tesla if you want it to make some noise. I we recently went to a trip to uh, Columbia and we were visiting a tourist spot with lake area and they do these helicopter tours and there was i mean my spanish is not amazing but i could i got the gist that these signs were like do not ride on the helicopter down with the hell i mean the community was so fed up with these helicopter rides and it doesn't take a genius to figure out why this helicopter is running i don't know 12 15 hours a day helicopters make a tremendous amount of noise and it's mostly engine noise, not, uh, you know, the, the, the actual chopping of the propeller is not silent either. But what are your thoughts? I know you guys are, are kind of more focused on going forward than up, but what's your take on the noise angle here? It feels like there is a reckoning coming for what I'll call property rights versus transportation, where the property rights folks are going to say, listen, I get it. I, I moved next to an airport. That's my bad. But this helicopter business and some of these low-flying aircraft, I mean, this noise issue feels like it's coming to a head. What's your take? And it, it feels like you guys are kind of on the right side of history here, almost by accident. I mean, you're not a noise reduction guy, but your technology is, I, I'm guessing, substantially quieter. People of Bahamas might appreciate a mode of transportation that arrives silently versus a, a fantastically loud helicopter. What's your take on the noise angle? I might not be a, a noise production guy per se, but my father is. So uh, my father's an acoustics engineer. He's worked uh, in, in acoustics management for construction projects. Uh, and so as I was growing up, you know, that was the doctrine I learned. That was the first form of engineering I learned was, was acoustics engineering. So um, intimately familiar with the effects that acoustics can have on a community, be it 
transportation system, construction, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, the, the reckoning you speak of is already happening. Um, states spend millions, tens of millions of dollars a year on thermal insulation for houses in the pathways of airports. And uh, traffic pattern mitigation is one of the largest deals right now of the new air traffic control systems is how can we mitigate air on the approach and departure pathways. For mobility technologies, uh, noise is incredibly significant, especially when you consider coastal communities where the, uh, the the infrastructure, the buildings there are typically, you know, higher property value, and therefore you have, uh, you know, um, wealthier, more outspoken people that are making us think about um, these transportation technologies. For example, you look at uh, the Hamptons uh, airports and some of the, the conversations now about uh, limiting or banning flights. Certainly seaplanes are already banned in, in several parts uh, of, of uh, the Hamptons and, and um, Shelter Island areas today because of noise. So noise is incredibly significant. When we think about noise, there's two parts that make noise. An engine, we don't have those, and the propellers. Um, actually, with the helicopter, what you are hearing mostly is the propeller noise. That that wop, wop, wop sound is predominantly propeller noise. Uh, so propellers can be quite loud. Um, the, the primary thing that makes a propeller loud is how much thrust it's generating. There's a lot of other factors, but in general, the less air you're pushing, the quieter your propeller will be. Uh, and so you think about, you know, how a propeller moves, uh, it, it lifts the vehicle. So you have a thrust to weight ratio of at least one, right? You are moving the amount of air, you're imparting a force on the air, Newton's law, right, that, that picks you up. Uh, and helicopters need to go up, so they actually have a thrust to weight ratio of greater than one, so they can accelerate vertically. Um, now you think about an airplane, which still needs to climb. So we still need to impart more thrust uh, to make that airplane climb therefore generating noise. Now you compare it to a sea glider. So again, no engine noise. And now we think about our propellers. We never have to climb. We are always in this advantageous form of transportation, either on our hydrofoils or flying in this, in this, on this cushion of air, uh, which is aerodynamically favorable. So our propellers are always generating less thrust than any other kind uh, of aircraft, and therefore they'll be much quieter. Uh, and then the last exciting part is that we don't actually take off until we're out in the open waters. So for the entire time we're in the harbor, for the entire time we're near people uh, who could get upset, and justifiably so, getting upset at, at loud things, they want to sleep at night, they don't want to have all this transportation noise uh, in their communities, um, they will not hear it with sea gliders because sea gliders are boats, they float, foil, and fly. So those first two modes the floating mode and the foiling mode are done in the harbor at much, much lower power settings. So you really don't hear the propellers at all. And then they take off into that flight mode out in the water. So for all those reasons, sea gliders are actually the most quiet by a large margin uh, flying vehicle compared to you know helicopters, aircraft, anything like that. I just see the regulatory environment considering that more and more heavily. I mean, in, in my view, uh, you mentioned... Uh, the Hamptons, Van Nuys in um, Los Angeles, you know, another airport that gets a tremendous amount of private air traffic. So you've got an airplane coming in, two people on the airplane. So thousands of people affected, two people benefited. Um, it just, you know, it feels like that space is due for, uh, I don't know, a, a second look. 
we're way off script. I'm going to take us a little bit farther off script. All right. We're on this issue of noise. This was nowhere on the agenda for today, but we're here. I remember when the SEALs, the Navy SEALs went in and took out Osama bin Laden. There was a lot of conversation about a helicopter that the world, you know, normal people like me, had not really heard about that, you know, it was able to approach with a really greatly reduced noise footprint. So the bad guys didn't hear it coming. Um, you're saying, hey, listen, the noise is mostly coming from the propeller, not from the engine. I buy that at face value. That checks out. It feels like the propeller thing, this is mostly a physics issue. You know, you can't you can't not have thrust or else the flying stops happening. Right. So any, any take on what may have been in play here to allow this uh, helicopter to become... What I'm being told is significantly less loud than a normal helicopter. Yeah, so now we're now we're getting into propeller design, which is a which is a, a fun but very very deep rabbit hole. And I should say, not at all IoT. So my apologies to the audience. If you want to skip ahead two minutes, we are going to come back to tech in a minute. But tell us a little bit about what you what may have been in play here. So I, I simplified a little bit when I said thrust leads to noise. Uh, the when when you start talking about the design variables of the propeller, the actual thing that leads to noise most is how fast the tip of the propeller is going around in a circle. Uh, the the higher that goes, your noise actually scales to the sixth power of that. So it, it is very strong correlation. Basically, you want the slowest tips you can possibly get, um, but you need to generate a certain amount of thrust, and so. If you want to slow the tips, uh, there's a few things you can do. You can try to create less thrust. So that helicopter may have been a very, very lightweight, you know, skeletonized helicopter. Again, we're creating less thrust. We don't need to spin the props as fast, generate less noise. Um, you can also increase either the blade count uh, or just how thick those blades are. You think about, uh, you know, blades are basically spinning wings, uh, but you think about how long and thin and tapered a blade is compared to a wing. Uh, so you can actually sort of stretch out those blades and make them chunkier, add more blades. That means you can create more lift. Uh, the, the lift sort of roughly scales with the area uh, of, like if you were to look down at the top of a propeller, how much actual area of that disc is covered up with propeller. Uh, if you're trying to generate too much uh, thrust per area, uh, the flow will will actually detach from the propeller. It's, it's called stall. It's the same thing that happens on a wing at low speeds. You stall the wing. You actually can't turn the air. It's a physics problem. You can't turn the air fast enough. So clawing out of the rabbit hole a little bit now, uh, that helicopter was likely, you know, high blade count with nice, thick, chunky blades on a skeletonized uh, helicopter, all of those things make your tips spin very slow. So it's a, you know, the slowest moving blade they can. Um, then they probably do some special tip treatments and stuff like that to, to get out any sort of whispers and, and uh, you know, acoustic notes and things like that. You can play with... Um, uh, you can play with certain frequencies to make it less perceptible to the human ear uh, and, you know, package that all into a nice secret system and rather rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. And, and now we're out of the rabbit hole. I was wondering if it was anything to do with sort of a noise canceling effect, you know, where the, the uh, helicopter was throwing off acoustics that would neutralize in, to some degree the technical term used, the wop wop of the of the propeller. But uh, don't respond. We're going to go into this another day. So I got to bring us back. We're way over time. Tell us a little bit about Wrong Side of Impossible. So you guys are a moonshot company. You're going to totally change the game. 
you know, it seems to me that a moonshot company uh, has got probably three different things that don't currently exist at least. You got to invent them, small miracles you need to have happen, whatever. What, what are some things, you know, this is basically the, Billy, what keeps you from sleeping at night question? What are the things you've got to make happen in order for this to come to fruition? Yeah, um, we're, I know we're running long on time, so I'll talk about two of them here. Um, from the technical side, uh, we think about you know battery availability as we scale Sea Glider deliveries. So we're, we're talking about scaling to hundreds of deliveries per year, sort of in line with commercial aviation today. Uh, and we're already seeing you know a demand on resources like lithium, you know, which are a key part of these uh, technologies. And so. Uh, monitoring both, uh, you know, how much global lithium is available for these batteries, where are we getting these lithium sources? You know, you talk about defense, and there are certainly uses in national security and defense for sea gliders, but, uh, you know, some of the predominant lithium mining places and battery manufacturers are in countries where we may be in conflict with over the over the coming decades. So, you know, the, the localization and the supply chain of lithium and the other uh, chemicals in battery manufacture and also the rate at which the industry is moving to look towards uh, less uh, lithium-dependent battery chemistries like silicon, for example. So um, that, that general battery availability, especially in an era uh, of growing electrification, of automotive electrification, maritime electrification, home electrification, and, and you know growing now uh, aviation and sea glider electrification, uh, that, that's certainly something we're watching uh, on, the, on sort of the technical supply chain side. Um, on the business side, uh, you know, we are creating a new mode of transportation. And so user adoption is, is clearly very high on our minds, like it should be uh, on, on the mind of, of any company developing a product or, or service. How are you getting uh, your customers? Now, Regent is an OEM where the Boeing of sea gliders. So, you know, we sell sea gliders to uh, the operators, the airlines and ferry companies that will use them. Uh, but we still do have an aspect of that B2C sort of marketing in our, in our business plan where we need to educate the, the public, the passengers of sea gliders on what these are, you know, how they work, why they're better, that they're built safe enough that they can trust themselves and their families uh, to ride on these vehicles. We need to get them into uh, harbors and, and proliferate sea glider operations all around the world. And that takes buy-in from, from many different parties, uh, including, you know, those, those coastal residents who are concerned about noise, uh, but there are concerns about uh, operations in crowded harbors. There's concerns about uh, wildlife, you know, be it maritime or aviation wildlife. So um, there are many different seats at the table. Uh, we need to sort of bring them all together and address all of their incredibly valid concerns, uh, and then at the end of the day, uh, you know, get passengers to ride on Sea Glider. We know this will be a tremendously better experience than anything exists today. Uh, but you know, we 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 can't prove that until we actually do it and have people aboard. Um, I will definitely be riding already. I, I hope you will be too. But you know, user adoption is something we think about. Yeah, yeah, you can count on me. So, talk to me about the future. Like, what, what are we going to be seeing from Regent as, you know, uh, like I said, we're recording this, you know, December 2022. Talk to me about 23 and 24. What's sort of like the earlier you mentioned, hey, this is a multi-decades play. Like, bring us into the intermediate term. You know, what do you think we can expect to see out of Regent in, in the next year or two? 
Yeah, well, so we this year we uh, proved that sea gliders can exist, that we can float foil and fly, and especially do that that foil to wing transition that's never been done in history. So we've done that on our quarter scale technology demonstrator, uh, and so the next step for us is to build it bigger. Uh, so we're currently in development of our full scale prototype, which will fly humans on board by the end of 2024. So we have this two year program ahead of us that we're embarking upon. Uh, but that's where really all hands on deck are on the technology development side, on the on the you know safe and successful build and test flight execution of that vehicle. Uh, meanwhile, we're continuing to grow our order book. We have over seven billion dollars. Uh, in letters of intent right now, and uh, including firm deposits. So we're actually one of the few companies that have firm contracts with non-refundable money down for the first year of Sea Glider deliveries. Uh, so we'll look to continue building out uh, that backlog of firm orders there over the next year. And I'd also expect to see some more engagement uh, with the Department of Defense. Ah, DOD, that's great. You know, you, you've mentioned foil. You know, this is like you say Beetlejuice three times and he appears. You say, you, if you say foil enough times, Larry Ellison will dial into the show. For folks that haven't followed uh, or are not aware, you know, Larry Ellison, I don't know the exact story, but he, Larry Ellison, founder of uh, Oracle, one of the world's richest men, you know, sort of a famously passionate sailor and, uh, you know, kind of put a stake in the ground and said, listen, my team is going to win. Uh, what is it called? America's Cup. The the America giant. Cup. Yeah, I don't think the U.S. had fared particularly well in this. I can't remember. I want to say something like they'd never won, or it had been a long time. And he said, "My team is going to just take this thing over." I was there in the San Francisco Bay the year that the, that his team won it, and what that did not look like a sailboat to me. You know, I this this boat consistently got up on a hydrofoil. You know, it looked to me, I don't know, five, ten, maybe more feet above the surface of the ocean, the surface of the bay. Did this change the foil world or was this just a new application of an existing technology? It, I mean, I, this I assume you must know a thing or two about this particular topic. It, it, can you talk about are there is there connective tissue between what he achieved and what Regent has got going on? Absolutely. So maybe just taking a step back, because in the in the you know intro in the description of this vehicle, uh, you know I talked about how this is a flying boat that stays over water and does dock to dock, uh, but I didn't really talk about how it does it. So uh, sort of just a, a quick intro there. Uh, sea gliders float, foil, and fly. So you board them like it's a ferry floating on its hull. Then they hydrofoil through uh, harbors, and so hydrofoils are underwater wings essentially. And you might be familiar with America's up boats or, or uh, e-foil surfboards, uh, but they basically lift the boat or the surfer up on a stilt. Uh, you can generate lift underwater with a hydrofoil just like you can above the water with a wing or an airfoil. Uh, and so we hydrofoil through harbor, which gives us high degrees of wave tolerance and maneuverability passenger comfort and safety. And it's not until we get to the periphery of the harbor, the open water where the traffic dies down, that we take off onto our wings, retract the hydrofoils like landing gear and fly in that cushion of air at 180 miles an hour. So the hydrofoils are a critical part uh, of sea glider operations. They enable us to transit the harbor like a boat and we're a very wave tolerant, maneuverable, safe boat. 
but they are a critical part. So bringing it back to uh, Larry Ellison and the America's Cup, absolutely critical. You can think of the America's Cup as basically the F1 of the sailing world or of the maritime world in general. You know, it is the pinnacle of technology. They're using the latest materials. They're using the latest computational models to model the physics. It is it is literally F1 on the water. Uh, and so you, when you switch to the uh, hydrofoil regime, all of a sudden the technology just takes off. The, the modeling, the control, the design, you know, the structural design, composite manufacture of these foils, um, everything has, has advanced leaps and bounds over the past decade in hydrofoil technology because of the America's Cup, which actually allows us to build foils that can go this fast, that can be actively controlled, that can be built out of lightweight and very strong carbon fiber and retracted into the vehicle. Uh, that is really an unlock for sea glider technology. And indeed, uh, we have uh, people on the team uh, from you know the, the Oracle America's Cup team. We have uh, a two-time world champion America's Cup engineer on the team that leads our structural design. So um, we, we've you know harvested that technology, that world-leading technology to apply to sea gliders. That's incredible. So we're way over time. I got one last question for you. You've been in this space for a while. You know IoT well. You, it sounds like you know a lot of things well. Tell me about, you know, I, I always love to ask people, who's out there doing great work not enough people are talking about? I think if I don't give you some structure, you could probably name 20 companies across, I don't know, 10 different industries. Who, what's a technology in your home that you're enjoying right now? And then who is helping you in this journey? that you think more people should be talking about. Awesome. All right. Thank you for the for the guardrails here. Um, so I actually I just bought my first house. Uh, Regions moved to Rhode Island. We're, we're proud to call the ocean state our home. You can imagine it's pretty applicable to be building sea gliders in the ocean state. But uh, we, we came here for many other reasons as well. Um, so setting up my home, trying to get the latest gadgets. I've, I've fallen in love with the Ecobees. Uh, it's awesome. And I know they're on the show recently, too. So uh, props to them. I, I love the apps. I'm starting to get into the optimization here. Uh, Super awesome. Um, and then in terms of, you know, helping us, there, there, we have a, a combination of our supply chain of sort of established large tier one suppliers that are, you know, supplying all of aerospace and the Boeings and Airbuses of the world, but also some other startups like us. So uh, an incredibly helpful one has been uh, Alicor Tech that builds our avionics systems, so flight computers and sensors. Uh, they've moved fast. They've delivered the, the components on time and for reasonable prices and have really allowed us to do this rapid prototyping effort while practicing for the full-scale vehicle to come. So our, our pace of development that we've been able to build this vehicle basically in the course of 15 months, do something that's never been done in aviation or maritime before, uh, and now get ready for this full-scale prototype and fly humans within two years uh, is to a large extent because of you know technologies like Alicor Tech provides and some of our other suppliers. So you said Alicor Tech is the name of it? Alicor Tech. Yeah, they're awesome. All right. Alicor Tech and Eco B friend of the show. Um, I'm sure both appreciate the shout out. Billy, thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. Join us next time as we meet with another IoT executive and talk about what went wrong on a journey that went right. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.